This episode has a trigger warning as it discusses death and contains gunshot sound effects. Welcome to Teach Reach, a podcast with Tongi. I gratefully acknowledge the Masquee, Kwantlen, Katsi, and Semiamu First Nations on whose unceded territories I am privileged to live, work, and play. A good teacher's lessons will stay with you every day for the rest of your life. Today, I will be exploring the teachings of my cousin, Vanessa Erivo. If I ask you how many people it took to be where you are now, what would you say? Most people would answer two. Technically, we need two humans to exist in the flesh. If I ask how many people it took to get those two people before you, you'd answer four. If we continue this exercise for the last 400 years, it took about 5,000 people to be where you are right now. Those 5,000 people are no longer here physically, but at the same time, they are. You carry them with you every day. It can be overwhelming because 5,000 is a big number. That's a lot of people. When I think about this, I am often inundated with a sense of panic. I feel some sort of responsibility towards this large contention of people. To carry myself a certain way. To carry their legacy. Yet, I also feel a profound sense of security knowing that all these people are with me, within me, protecting me. Like Kendrick Lamar says, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. So in any direction you step, you're never alone. Your ancestors are alive, vividly alive with you. A group of 5,000 can be pretty impressive. Each of those 5,000 is a story in and of itself. This reminds me of a quote by Richard Wagamese, an Ojibwe author from Kamloops, British Columbia. He said, All that we are is story, from the moment we are born to the time we continue on our spirit journey, we are involved in the creation of the story of our time here. It is what we arrive with, it is all we leave behind. Being a language teacher with my students, I interact a lot with stories, stories we read, watch, dance to, and sometimes stories that they have to write. In the first episode, I mentioned that I carry many other hats than being a father, husband, and teacher. I also write poetry. And with my students, I am often confronted with the empty page staring contest, the blanking cursor, the proverbial writer's block. There are many strategies to overcome the block. And after nine years as a teacher, I think the writer's block sometimes has its purpose. The American novelist Hemingway in his memoir, A Movable Feast, said, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. Do you know what your truest sentence is? Have you ever thought about what you hold to be true, the truest that you know? Today's episode is about the truest sentence I know. I often ask myself, How did I escape death? Why wasn't it my time? 
the biggest pain I carry is having survived. I was born in 1981 in Brussels, Belgium. My Haitian parents met there while in university. All I know from my time in Belgium is what my parents tell me and what I see in pictures. One thing that always transpired in that time there was that my parents seemed happy and in 90% of the photos, I am with my cousin Vanessa. I said that my parents seemed happy, but both of them had a very different vision on what would happen after they graduated. My mother loved Belgium and dreamed about staying there. However, it was never in my dad's plan to work caille blanc for the white man, as he put it. In 1983, we were offered the Belgian citizenship that my dad declined by stating that Haiti needed them more than Belgium, and no one in his household should have any other citizenship but Haitian. He moved back to Haiti shortly after that, wrote lengthy letters threatening a divorce if he couldn't see his kid, me, and his wife. My mother and I moved back to Haiti in November the same year. My dad's move was motivated by the patriotic fiber that vibrates within all Haitians, especially at that time when the fight against the dictatorship was gaining momentum and the end seemed near. My mother's move was motivated by the love for her husband to save her marriage, but also for me to know my land, to have an anchor, and also to get to interact with the only child I knew, Vanessa. Vanessa's mother, my dad's sister, Mama Ken, also got hooked on the same patriotic fiber and they made their move back to Haiti too. I must say that on my dad's side, they breathe political involvement, participation in the things of the city, standing for justice, standing against abuse. And this is why it's impossible to talk about my past in Haiti without the continuous backdrop of the political climate. So much so that it's kind of a lens for me. In my household, I was raised to believe that our existence was and is deeply political. Beside the politics, many of my childhood memories at the time involved playdates with Vanessa, running in our grandma's backyard, climbing things that were not climbable, watching the Smurfs on TV. Vanessa loved the Smurf, the Strumpf. We were two years apart. She loved me like a little brother, and I loved her a lot. In my eyes, she was the prettiest person I've ever known. She had an answer for all my questions. She understood who was who when we would listen in on the political debates. And to me, she was fearless. Our grandma's house had a basement. I mean, to this day, I do not know a lot of houses in Haiti with a basement. To access the basement, you had to go down an L-shaped set of stairs. My great-uncle Tonton Gabo lived there, and sometimes he was pretty sick, and you could hear the poor guy struggling to breathe, sometimes moaning quite loud trying to deal with his pain. Hearing those noises coming from the dark basement, I was always very scared to put one toe on the first step. It was Vanessa who guided me down the stairs one day. She told me that it was our uncle down there, that sometimes he doesn't see anyone and we can go and say hi, talk to him. I was convinced that there was a big crazy monster down there and that I would not come out alive. I can still feel her gentle hold of my hand guiding me down the stairs to visit our tonton. For the five-year-old that I was, seven-year-old Vanessa was 
totally badass. Vanessa remains an indelible part of my memory. I believe even that she constitutes my whole memory because each instance of my being then was defined by her presence and now by default, by her absence. It was April 1987, after Baby Doc. Despite his physical departure, the ghost of the dictatorship was ever-present. That's when you know it's a system. The Gramun, the adults, would debate about how the transition should be done to have a democracy. We were one month removed from the referendum for a new constitution, another historical milestone for us. Nevertheless, the political climate wasn't so stable. It was not uncommon to go to bed pendant Zamap Chante under the symphony of gunshots. And sometimes you would wake up and find empty shells and casing in the streets and backyards, etc. The only thing that sometimes prevented the gunshots was the rain. It's still very comical to me how the rain scares the tough guys carrying their machine guns. Mother Nature can ever be so powerful. Whenever it rained, back then, they would retrieve into their hole. The thing is, when it rains on our island, it is a big deal. Due to poor drainage systems, the threat of flooding is constantly looming. And April is the start of the rainy season. On Thursday, April 23rd, 1987, my Aunt Mama Ken was gearing up to celebrate her upcoming birthday on Sunday, April 26. Mama Ken was known as a diva, and the true definition of it too. A self-important person who is temperamental and difficult to please. When she stepped into a room, she commanded attention. And now I can see why Vanessa was fearless. Like mother, like daughter. Mama Ken was my dad's younger sister. But when he talks about her, it seems that he looked up to her. There is a reverent respect that us, the exhumés, that we have for Mama Ken. Like all of the exhumés, she was a teacher. She was a respected nursing teacher at Hôpital de l'Université d'État d'Haïti, our general hospital. Mama Ken loved three things dearly. Her family, her teaching job, and her birthday. Her birthday was a national affair. So on April 23, 1987, Mama Ken asked her friend Betty to pick her up so they could work together on the dresses that she would wear for her birthday. Yes, dresses. Her birthday would be on Sunday. Therefore, one dress to go to church in the morning at Église Sacré-Cœur de Turgeau. And since one shall not wear the same dress twice, especially on your birthday, she would wear the other dress in the afternoon for the party. That day, my dad drove me early to my grandma's for a play date with Vanessa. At around 10 a.m., Betty arrived to work on the dresses with Mama Ken. They decided that it would be best to drive back to Betty's, a 20-minute drive, to have all the equipments, sewing machines, etc. Mama Ken thought it was best to bring the kids, Vanessa and I, so we could play with Betty's daughter. So we spent the day, we played while the ladies worked on the dresses. Between 3 and 5 p.m., the sky darkened suddenly, with heavy clouds, and one could sense we were about to have a downpour. 
In this 3 to 5 p.m. window, there is a string of back and forth phone calls that happen that would determine the fate of everyone involved. My parents had recently moved to the outskirts of Port-au-Prince in a neighborhood called Delma 19. We did not have a phone at home, so any communication between my mom and my dad happened from the phone of the neighborhood movie theater, Cinéma Imperial. The plan was that Mama Ken would bring me back to my grandma's and my dad would pick me up to take me home. As it is still done in Haiti, you shall communicate with your loved ones to inform them that you are on your way, so they know to expect you, but more importantly, they kind of pray that you're safe, especially when it's about to rain. Vanessa called my mom at work from Betty's to tell her that we were not at my grandma's. My mom then spoke with Mama Ken to ask her to drop me off at home on their way to my grandma's because it's about to rain. My dad called his mom from work to ask if we were back. When they told him that we were not back, he asked that they call Betty to have her drop me off first because it's about to rain. My aunt Jocelyn, who was at my grandma's too, called to talk to Betty to ask that we stay at Betty's because it's about to rain. But we were already gone, on the way to have me dropped off at home. By then, my mom is back from work. My dad is at my grandma's from work. My mom goes to the movie theater to call my dad at my grandma's. She told him that I am not back yet, but she will ask Mama Ken, Betty, and Vanessa to stay with us, because it's about to rain. While my mom is leaving the movie theater, it started to rain. So, she called my dad again. She asked him to stay at his mom because it's about to rain. In Betty's car, I was in the middle seat between Vanessa and Betty's daughter. When the car arrived in front of our driveway with the red gate, I remember Betty honking so they could come and get me. My mom came towards the car hunch under a makeshift umbrella to get me. She directed me towards the gate and stayed back to ask Mama Ken and Betty to stay. It started with a gentle demand, but Mama Ken always does as she pleases. Then my mother tried her best to convince her to stay. She even told her that my dad had asked that she stays. She scoffed at that argument. She had to sleep in her bed tonight. I remember staying by the gate, peeking out, looking at the car, hearing the rumbling thunder, the hard rain on the sheet metal and the hood. I locked eyes with Vanessa. She waved at me with a smile through the window. My mom walked back inside, disappointed. The car backed away and disappeared under the rain. It was the last time that I saw her. As soon as I got inside to get my evening shower, my mom ventured into the movie theater under the rain to call my dad. By then, it was pitch black outside. She told them that Ken, Mama Ken, just left and that they should expect them soon. My grandma's house was up a hill in a neighborhood called Carrefour. One of the ways to get there is through a windy road via Place Jérémy, Route d'Edal, through St. Gerard's Church. 
As Betty and Mama Ken are making their way to my grandma's, the hill up to the house is in full flood mode. In the meantime, my dad is with his sisters, mother and father, looking at the debris going downhill. My dad's car was parked on the street and he recalls praying that the car doesn't get dislodged by the flood. At the bottom of the hill, Betty misjudged the corner leading to the hill and tried to go up. The downpouring of water carried the car down and for whatever reason, someone opened the door to get out. And by then, it was a cascade of occupants leaving the car. First Vanessa, then Mama Ken, then Betty and her daughter. This chaos was reported to us by neighbors down the hill. Betty found a way to rescue her daughter by throwing her in an empty patio, gallery area, that was high enough and didn't have much water. But she could not make her way out. Mama Ken, my aunt, was rescued by someone, but she bit that guy, screaming that she had to find her daughter Vanessa, who was going downstream with all the debris. As for Vanessa, I wasn't there to know what she went through what she experienced, but I imagine what she felt, her lungs squeezed smaller by the pressure, she choked and gagged on nothing, her throat burned with trapped air and her ears were pounding, her heart was beating against her chest as fast as a mouse and all she heard was the rumble of the clear liquid that had surrounded her. That is often how I dream what had happened to Vanessa. Mama Ken never found Vanessa. We spent the night without any news. Without phones, we couldn't communicate with my dad, who was two blocks away from his sister, his niece, and friend, drowning. The next morning on the radio, they reported having found the body of Marie-Joseph Exhumé, our Mama Ken, a nursing teacher at Hôpital de l'Université d'État d'Haïti. She had short hair, and was wearing an ample mumu. She was seven months pregnant. Her body was brought to the general hospital, the same hospital where she taught at. The next day, when my family arrived at the hospital, they also searched for Vanessa, Vanessa Irivo, and the hospital personnel told us that had they known that she was Mama Ken's daughter, they would have tried to resuscitate her. Vanessa could have had a chance. That day, we lost everything. I lost my best friend, my sister, my cousin, my fearless teacher. She was eight years old. Richard Wagamese finishes with, We are not the things we accumulate. We are not the things we deem important. We are a story, all of us. What comes to matter then is the creation of the best possible story we can while we are here. You, me, us, together. When we can do that and we take the time to share those stories with each other, we get bigger inside. We see each other. We recognize our kinship. We change the world. 
one story at a time. Today's episode was about the truest sentence I know. I know dying at that moment was not to be part of my story. I know that I remained alive to tell this story. I am a storyteller. This is the truest sentence I know. Teach Reach is made by Dr. Lemstein Productions, mixing and editing by Ian Lamb. The intro and outro music is by Takuto. If you'd like to listen to the show on the regular, become a subscriber and leave us a review on Apple, Google, or Spotify. You can find more information about our podcast at teachreach.podbean.com. Until next time, Kembila Palagi. Hang in there. Don't give up.